Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and I'm joined on this episode by Norfolk County Mayor Amy Martin. For those of you who don't know Norfolk, there's no folk like Norfolk. It's a county of communities in southwestern rural Ontario on Lake Erie, south of Hamilton and Brantford. It includes Simcoe, Port Dover, Delhi, and Waterford. Now, this is the first in a series of podcasts we plan to do with new civic leaders to hear about the issues in different communities and to highlight a new generation of municipal leadership. Mayor Martin is the kind of mayor we could all use more of. She's passionate, smart, kind, and she's driven to make a difference for her home community. She served as councillor starting in 2018, and she defeated an incumbent mayor this past fall. She's also a product of Norfolk County herself, and at the age of 34, she represents the generational change we very much need with an approach to politics that we very much need. She comes to politics with experience in the nonprofit sector, including stints with the Heart and Stroke Foundation and the MS Society. And as you'll hear, it was her experience in the nonprofit world and her work directly in and for her community that ultimately led her to run for office. Now, we recorded this last week and Mayor Tory resigned last week in scandal. And so this, if anything, is a good reminder that we do have strong municipal leadership elsewhere around this province. Amy Martin might be a mayor in rural southwestern Ontario, but she's a mayor we could all use more of. Amy, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for the invite. So you are, I was going to say newly minted, but it's been a number of months now, but you are the fairly new mayor uh, of Norfolk County, and you are also only 34. And as a starting point, just so people can get to know you, how did you come to politics? What were you thinking running for office at the age of 34? Only 34, but feel much older in politics. <laughs> we all do. We all do. Um, I actually, it's a, it's, it's a funny story. It was a, a really just the right place, right time. Certain things in my life had aligned. And when I look back on it, there's a very clear path of how I got here. But in the moment, there was lots of uncertainty and I didn't, I, I was never planning to be, you know, a politician or elected official. Just, I, I said yes to opportunities that came my way. And um, for me specifically in my community, I was advocating with a volunteer group for a community hub, a recreation facility. And I was coming to council and working with this volunteer group and we weren't really getting anywhere. And then the election was the discussion of, of changing in our community and changeover at the table was brought about. And my volunteer group said, you've got to run. And I said, absolutely not. No way. I, I'm not. And I think of myself as a critical thinker and a strategic thinker. And it's embarrassing to say, but I had genuinely never thought of myself in that role because of the silliest things. I wasn't retired and I wasn't in a position where I could leave my work. I I wasn't, you know, a, a, a male. All of our council was men. And, you know, all these silly things that are so irrelevant to the role and to why I couldn't or could run. Long story short, they encouraged me to attend a campaign school in Guelph, and I went hoping to find three reasons why I could not, why I would not follow through. And I thought <laughs> I'm going to come back with these three solid reasons. And these Convince me not to do it. That's right. But shocker, you don't go to a campaign school and find out reasons why you can't run. Um, and it was really insightful and and um, a, a really engaging experience. So I went to another campaign school and got all the tools that I felt I needed, felt encouraged. And I, I ran and I and I won. And the rest is kind of history. I jumped in. And very successfully. And I should add unseating an incumbent, which is very hard to do 
at all levels of politics, but especially municipal politics. Mm-hmm. And the volunteer experience is interesting too, because ultimately, and I hope more people see politics in this way, but it really is public service, community service, and your previous community service lends itself well to the job that you now hold. In the job that you now hold, you are not only the mayor, you are then part of various caucuses, and one of which is the Western Ontario Wardens Caucus. Walk me through what that is, because I'm quite interested in how townships and counties get together, small counties, small municipalities on their own, but collectively using their voices to be more powerful. Yeah, it's it's really, really unique and interesting and um, encouraging and educational for me because this this is new for me as a as a former elected official. I was a council member and you didn't participate on this bigger level where you strategized and put your heads together. But I think a common theme is that rural communities are left behind. Rural communities can't find economies of scale. Rural communities are ignored because they don't have a loud voice. And what uh, the Western Ontario Wardens Caucus does, I, I call it WOWC, but I know others call it WOWC. So uh, ignore me, but wow, see, we put our heads together and we um, represent over 300 communities with, uh, you know, don't quote me on how many uh, wardens and mayors, but maybe about 10 or 12 of us. And what we do is we represent collectively 1.5 million people in our communities and 250,000 businesses. And the former term um, put their heads together. They came up with some key priorities that we go to the provincial government, we go to the federal government, we register for, for delegations at conferences, and we are consistent with our voice and our messaging. Certainly we can get off topic and share unique experiences and examples in our own communities. But the the consistent themes are just that they're done in lockstep, they're consistent, and we come 1.5 million people strong and knock on the door to the government and say, we're not small, we're not rural. Look at us. We're we're sharing in these, you know, initiatives. So of the 1.5 million, there are some friends and family of mine. My wife's family is in Lambton County, which I know is part of the Wowsey organization. And the four priorities that are laid out, I I find interesting, actually, but I'm also interested in ways you might want to add to that list of priorities. But let's start with what the existing priorities are. So the four are housing, mental health and addictions, workforce development, and broadband cellular infrastructure. Let's start with housing because the province is and the federal government is these all levels of government are now trying to be seized with this challenge in a much more serious way. I think, I think there's a certain chaos that we've seen at the provincial level through the slashing of development charges. You at one point called for a pause to make sure there was additional consultation with municipalities. Mm-hmm. How are you finding that conversation going now? And obviously we all want to deliver on affordable and attainable housing, but how we go about it also matters. Well, I guess, firstly, I would say, um, so I I did do a bit of research on you prior to connecting with you. And one of the things I was really inspired by, and I think is extremely brave and rare, was some commentary you provided about, you know, although that you are connected with a liberal party, you are, some people think that you're the most independent MP out there, because you, you, you have to you have to make sense of the the policies and the priorities that you're working on and it's not it's it's difficult to go against that and find opposition and so 
I try to work with the provincial government of the day, whomever they are, but also make sense of the policies at hand. So yes, we called for a pause. We called for more consultation. None of that has happened um, concerning, you know, Bill 23 and Bill 109. And they are, um, they're directly going to impact the taxpayers across Ontario, rural or urban in in a download, because what's happening is we no longer have the time or the funds to work towards the mandate of fulfilling, you know, more homes. And and that is a priority for all of us. Um, And it's a good priority, but the delivery, the way, the way that we're supposed to get there is flawed to say the least. So what it's going to do is place a burden on municipal uh, planning and engineering departments. It's going to cost the taxpayers money when we need to refund permitting fees and, application fees to the development community because we can't meet the mandated timelines. And we're seeing a massive reduction in the collection of development charges, uh, which is already the position Norfolk County is in. So um, if anyone's listening, heed my warning that in years to come, municipalities across Ontario are going to be in a position where they're going to need to build out critical infrastructure like water and wastewater, and they're not going to have money in the bank account to do it because growth should pay for growth. Development charges pays for future growth so that you and I aren't paying to put water in the ground for the next subdivision that comes here in 10 years. And unfortunately, that is the situation Norfolk County's in, which is probably a whole other podcast for itself all (laughs) alone. But municipalities are going to find themselves in that position where they're not going to have any money in the bank to pay for critical infrastructure, which it's it, this is Ontario. This is Canada. It's 2023. Um, regardless of where you are in the world, certainly here in Canada, everybody deserves clean drinking water, period. It's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned a more independent track record and that that is something you value because I, as someone who was born, raised, and represented Toronto riding, as I have traveled the province and as I've engaged with people in different ways, both at the federal level, but also as I explore the provincial liberal leadership, I've met people in all sorts of different communities. And one question that occasionally comes up is, how are you going to connect with people being from Toronto? How are you going to connect with people all across the province? And in my experience, you know, my dad's from Windsor and my aunt's from outside of Hamilton, but my, my wife's family, I mentioned being in Lambton County and my wife's uncle bob who's in essex and is more conservative than most people i know they all value an, a sense of honesty in politics they all value yes. a sense of independence in politics and a willingness to speak one's mind and there are conservatives who vote for me in my writing who might not agree with everything i say but they value the way that one approaches politics in a in a straightforward and, and decent and honest way so i do think there are common values in in that regard Mm-hmm. Another element of my advocacy at the federal level, which has been divisive at times, if, if I'm being fair, has been around drug policy. I have called for decriminalizing low-level possession. I've called for treating drug use as a health issue. I've called for really reforming the way we think about drug policy and addictions and mental health. And we've passed legislation actually recently to that end. Initially, I will tell you when I was thinking about this provincial adventure and thinking, maybe this advocacy is not politically popular. Maybe it's going to come back to bite me. And it's, I wouldn't have changed any of my advocacy, but politics being politics, eyes wide open, maybe this isn't going to be helpful along the way. And in a very different, very differently from what I expected, I would say, mental health and addictions 
comes up in every single community that I've gone to, whether it is a large or medium-sized urban center, whether it is a very small municipality, every single time. And even people I meet will say, well, the party needs to move back to the center. And I'll say, what's your priority? They say mental health and addiction beds or the outgoing uh, executive or former executive director of the London Economic Development Corporation said mental health and addiction is their top priority addressing the opioid crisis. And that is one of the four priorities of WOWC. And how is that? How are you seeing that crisis and mental health and addictions impact your community? I'm not sure that I I could say that I've watched the needle move at all on this issue. And it's uh, it's a detrimental concerning issue. So we're we're broken down into urban centers and we see it more in some centers than others, two in particular that come to mind. And both of those communities are directly tied with the desire to um, revitalize the downtown, to bring in additional housing, to find recreation and supports for kids and youth and all of these other things. And so a big thing that I I I'm always trying to do, and I don't know if I'm successful in it, but when a simple development file comes before us at council, where's the green space? Where's the park space? And what contributions can you make in a very transparent way to our community that you're going to assist us in building a full community? So what does sidewalks and light lighting have to do with drugs and mental health? You might say not a lot, but when you start to build out full safe communities and the infrastructure and you create opportunities for education and recreation, I think systemically we can start to um, give our youth and at-risk individuals more opportunities in our community um, in a very accessible way. But that doesn't help the people right now that we're seeing in our communities. And so, you know, we have safe needle drop-off locations. Um, we have a lot of uh, methadone clinics in our communities. And I think that there's an education piece that needs to happen, but there's also, I personally don't know enough about your efforts um, and the conversation around like decriminalizing. I, I couldn't comment on that, but what I can say with 110% certainty is what we're doing now isn't working. Exactly. It's not working. Exactly. And the core of it is we need to treat this as a health issue. And if you want to pr protect public safety, if you want to ensure that those downtowns and those businesses aren't being negatively impacted, you have to take a public health approach. That the answer mm -hmm. is really, one, respecting people, not dehumanizing them, not creating the stigma where people aren't seeking the treatment that they need, and then making sure that there's housing supports, there are beds available, and making sure that there is on-demand treatment available. And it's at all levels of government. Uh, you know, I did a video recently where I was trying to respond to Pierre Polyev's sort of renewed call for a war on drugs. But at the federal level, we've got to fund evidence-based treatment in a way that we've promised to fund that we haven't funded yet. And at the provincial level, there are mental health supports that, you know, they'll roll out very large numbers and, and pat themselves on the back. But those numbers aren't large enough given the scale of the crisis. So there are ways of addressing the crisis. And really interestingly, police chiefs are now saying the very same things. So there is a there's a consensus growing across the political spectrum police chiefs, medical experts, parents and families who have lost loved ones. So I see a path forward. We just really have to mm -hmm. see. And when I see that WOWC is calling for the very same kind of action, 
it gives me a sense of optimism. Yeah. And one of our initiatives specifically on the provincial level was to advocate for the MCERT programming with the police officers. So there's a certified mental health uh, worker that will ride around with police officers. So it's twofold. There's we need to be helping people and we need to be working on the direct issue instead of just kind of putting the Band-Aid on it and then repeating the cycle. And then we also need to look at a resource issue of our of our police officers and how their time's being spent and how it can be spent most effectively. And so traveling around with the mental health officer not only provides someone with that level of expertise at a call, at a, at a simple domestic violence, simple, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, something routine that officers may go to, like a domestic violence call, all the way up to something so elaborate and extreme that there's the expertise are there from a mental health perspective. And then should an individual go to the hospital, typically our police officers will sit with them for four or five hours until they can get care. And then they're not out in the communities because they're stuck. So that mental health officer is able to stay at the hospital. Um, So it's, it's a lot of things, but the call to action for the provincial government was to fund that consistently, the the MSERT programming. Interesting. And I mean, we could talk a lot about broadband and I've had opportunity to engage with the Rogers CEO fairly recently as part of the Rogers Shaw merger and there are re- real challenges to expanding broadband access, but it is happening slowly, but surely mm-hmm. too slowly. Uh, we could talk about workforce development as well, which is one of the other four priorities. Are there other, you can speak to either one of those issues, but are, are there, I'm also interested to know, are there are there other issues when you look at those four priorities and you say, yes, I'm going to continue to advocate for those four, but there are other issues that I want to see realized as part of this coalition of municipalities as part of WowC? Yeah, I, I think um, their priorities are spot on. They were developed at a time when I wasn't there, and I know that they had a long list of priorities, and so there are certainly others with merit. Um, but when I look at our municipality and common themes and conversations I have with other municipal sectors is just a general infrastructure gap. Um, and that could be roads and water and wastewater, and it can be recreation and and, and affordable housing through, through our um, Haldeman Norfolk housing program. Whatever the case is, there's a massive infrastructure gap. Um, in our particular community, previous councils, they kind of artificially kept taxes low by withdrawing from our reserve accounts. Um, and so now we're playing catch up and people are paying for the to close the gap on these things. But we should have enough money put away to replace the full life cycle costing on a lot of our on our on the building that I'm sitting in right now. And we don't have that. So forget the things like arenas and pools. We're also looking at that exact same problem with water and wastewater. And this is common throughout many municipalities. But as the provincial government has asked us to beef up our asset management plans, we are now legislated to have an asset management plan and know how much what we own is costing us and when we'll need to repair it and put that money away. Massive infrastructure gaps. So the difference is each community will have different priorities for where that infrastructure funding should go. Um, but that is a common, common theme because the planning hasn't been legislated. We haven't been required to have the money put away. And now we are through this asset management plan. The other one in southwestern Ontario is um, is gas wells, leaking gas wells, uh, which is really, really harmful and has significant environmental impacts, but also significant health impacts. And in Norfolk County, we were very fortunate to receive funding from the provincial government to cap um, two wells. And we know in Norfolk County that we have 2,600 
abandoned gas wells. Wow. And we're wow. spending millions on one. And this is we're, Norfolk County isn't the problem. This is across southwestern Ontario. There are thousands of gas wells. And so there's going to need to be a regionalized approach taken where all of these communities are asking for assistance um, in lockstep again. That's that's not a priority at this at this time for the WOWC group, but I can see it certainly popping up in the future. That's that's fascinating. And we've had this conversation around orphaned oil wells in Alberta at the federal level, and we actually had a fund to help do some cleanup. There's obviously mm-hmm. a two-part conversation here. One, companies have to be accountable for the cleanup where there can be that accountability and, and the companies aren't bankrupt and, and where they are bankrupt, maybe there's a parent company to, to, to go after to make sure that they, they pay their fair share on it. But where there is proper abandonment, there's no existing company, there's no parent company, Mm-hmm. then there is a, a, the public will be on the hook for this. And you don't want small municipalities to be on the hook for this. That that will devastate your finances. That's right. Yeah. And and again, I know I keep harping on it, but wastewater and water for us, um, our plans that we're trying to address that we have, we have communities in a development moratorium. Um, we have quality and capacity concerns elsewhere. Um, this plan to address our water and wastewater infrastructure alone could financially destabilize Norfolk County for the rest of time. So we need our partners provincially and federally to support us with something as simple and critical as water, but it leaves no wiggle room in the budget to, to then prioritize the gas wells, which are equally as, you know, concerning and important. And then, you know, forget about mental health and addictions and creating recreational spaces and and safe communities. And so you're juggling all these priorities and you want to, you have to rank them based on, you know, public safety and needs, but it, it's, it certainly would be another one that would financially destabilize many municipalities. Like I said, 2,600, just in Norfolk alone, um, not all active, but at any point in time, they can be, you, you could have the impact where you cap one and then another one erupts. So frustrating too, in some ways, because I'm sure when you were first elected, you, there's a certain level of ambition of things you want to achieve. And then you enter office, you start to receive briefings, you're doing your research on different issues and you say, oh, I'm going to have to just fix some of these things before I can even bring the level of ambition I want to bear to these other issues. Yeah. And the challenge of governing. Yeah, absolutely. It's sometimes daunting because it, you um, lose the ability to be creative and think strategically because you're always putting out fires. It's it's a resource issue on all levels in every department for us. But um you know, it's important work nonetheless. And and if we can get to a point where we can at, le- at least demonstrate to our community that we are planning for investments in other areas, if we can add things into our capital budget, does it suck that we're not going to pay for it over the next nine years? Yeah. But if we can get to it in 10 years and you can make a plan for it and we can demonstrate interest, then that's all that I can do right now. And that's what I will do. Well, at a high level, the way you articulated one of your priorities there is really around meeting the demands of a growing population. And, and there is this infrastructure gap that exists and the gaps only get wider if we don't address that infrastructure gap in, with respect to an eyes wide open around a growing population. And it's interesting because that has come up in conversations with folks in the expanding GTA. And it comes up in conversations like this one with smaller municipalities. And so you know, in this case, rural southwestern Ontario. And it is 
essential that all levels of government are seized with that challenge because it's it's an existing challenge that is only going to be further exacerbated going forward. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to ask because at the outset when you were talking about the difference, how important for you, or I don't know if you've turned your mind to this at all, but the sense of generational change in our politics and the idea that people who, you know, aren't the 65-year-old retired man in many cases, that we do need a new generation in part to deliver on forward-looking challenges, but in part as a matter of representation so other people see this as a, a real opportunity to make a difference. Yeah, it's so, so, so important. And it's easy for me to say that because I'm on the other side of it now. But I, it's exactly what it was. It was a representation issue, but I didn't even recognize that that's what it was. I couldn't even, I was so ignorant to it because it was so systemic and deep in our community that I couldn't even label it as a representation issue. I just, it was a no for me. It was a not an option for me. And so now that I'm here, I le- I really enjoy chatting with kids, uh, reading in the local bookstore, going to schools. Um, They say the funniest things. It's a really great way to lighten up and break up your day, but to create that different image for them in what the role is and what it could look like and and that it is open to literally anyone who wants to work hard and put their heart and their mind in the right place. So yeah, I think on the local level, especially in rural communities, it's really, really important. But from a bigger picture, the generational change is is critical because we're seeing decline in votes in, in voter turnout, which I think is a generational concern. Um, I look at you know my friends and I don't they had never voted before I ran in the former term, um, and so then the provincial election comes up and they think is that when I go to vote for you know Amy again and so this education piece, but it, it's also changing times and the. The way that we can advocate more effectively, make a bigger impact, we can use social media, making sure that we're sharing messaging. Um, there's so many factors, but yes, the, the the broad answer, long story short, is yes, it's so critical and important. And I wish that I think as a legacy, that's one thing that I could leave behind is you want to leave everything better than you found it. But I could also encourage other like-minded young adults to run for council and get involved. And if you're not interested in that, sit on a committee, contribute in that way. And um, one of the discussions we had at budget was, was our wages here in Norfolk County. And I know everybody thinks that politicians are happy to give themselves wage increases and so on. It's a very uncomfortable thing to do, but for two years in a row, we have not increased our wages here. And the council members make about $40,000. Um, I know our neighboring municipality brings home about $75,000 for the same position and same role. So there's there's discrepancy between other communities. But $40,000 is great if you have a pension coming in. If you, it, It's not enough if you're a young adult with a mortgage and student loans and car payments and children. And it's yeah, not enough. Payments. Yeah, of course. That's right. And so we did vote to freeze our wages for another year, but I only supported it with the um, kind of on the recommendation that when we sit back down around next year or the year after that the increases are baked in. And I'm not concerned about myself and my own wage at this point in time. What I'm concerned about is keeping the role uh, appealing to someone else like me who comes after me. And if the wage is going to be the only deterrent, let's not let that be the deterrent. Yeah, I think at all levels, it's interesting. If federal MPs 
are well compensated and there is an escalator built in to depoliticize the process, which is good in some ways. It gets awkward in other ways when you have a situation like we're living through right now, such a difficult economic time and inflation and, and cost of living a real challenge to so many people. And I was just talking earlier about the increase in food banks and and then people will see, oh, these politicians are giving themselves a pay increase and it's it's automatic. We are not actively mm-hmm. doing it. The automatic nature of it is important to depoliticize it. And so it doesn't become a blow up yes. time. But the overall point is I think an absolutely fair one at the federal level. I think there is an attraction to the job. I don't think that the pay has to be markedly increased in any way whatsoever for it to be attractive at other levels of government and the level of government, especially that you currently occupy. We do want serious people to get involved. We do want people to see running for office and and politics in general as a way for them to make a difference because for all of its faults, Politics is one of the most important ways we make we can make a difference in the lives of our neighbors and those around us. And and that's why you got involved. But if we don't have enough people, especially younger people, to see it in that way, or mm-hmm. they say, I can make twice as much doing this, or and and because you give up your privacy in some cases, you give up your yeah. family. There's no nine to five that's right. this job as you are. And so you don't have kids yet, or you do have kids? I don't have kids yet. So increased challenges when Yes. When that happens, if that happens. Well, and and to be honest, to be extremely frank and vulnerable, what is the public's expectation of a 34-year-old mayor when we've never had that before? I'm sure they're expecting that I don't have a family when I'm in office. And then, you know, is there pressure or a desire to have a family to demonstrate to other people and be representative that I can do it? But all yeah, of it yeah. boils down to what what do I want to do, you know, with my, my life and my career? Yeah, and you should do what you damn well please. That's right. <laughs> But I will say this, you know, all this talk about younger people and the deterring factors and wage and so on. I had a a career in the not-for-profit sector previously, fundraising, um, very meaningful work, really great lifelong connections made. Um, And I will tell you this, that when I really, really struggled with running for mayor or, or getting out of politics at that point in time due to you know, not not the work per se, but maybe some personality conflicts and so on. It was a interesting time for me. The one of the reasons the catalyst for running for mayor was because I couldn't identify what I was going to do next um, in my career, in my life, with my trajectory that would fill my cup up as much as this does. What am I going to do? Forget the wage, forget the time, the hours, the people. Yeah. What am I going to do that? is so meaningful and impactful. So the highs are high, the lows are low, but overall in this line of work, if you're thinking about it, if you're considering it, if you're needing to contribute to something, like this is it, right? There's there's nothing else that really brings so much fulfillment and meaning to your to your day. Yeah, I, you are preaching to the choir. I, I The core question that we all have to ask ourselves that clearly you asked yourself and and answered, how do I make the biggest difference? And those of us who pursue politics pursue it for that reason. And it's actually, uh, and I I wonder what your thoughts on this. You mentioned sort of the independence, but you at the municipal level have an opportunity to have a very independent voice, but you also want to work and build bridges and be effective at the same time. So you mentioned 
needing to work with the provincial government, but also needing to stand your ground and be vocal and, and, and represent your community in a strong way. I think the other way that I think about making a difference in politics is working across party lines, is, is building those bridges, is doing politics a little bit differently in that way so that people also see it as an enterprise that isn't so partisan, that isn't full of toxic mudslinging, and, and that is a way of constructively working together. We don't agree on everything. We're not going to agree. I, I'm doing a Twitter spaces thing with Michelle Rempel later today. I don't agree with Michelle on lots of things, but I have a very good constructive working relationship with her. And I think that if we do this job right, that's the expectation that we that we should go into this to work across party lines to get things done. You have, I, I think, managed this already in some ways, working with the provincial government, meeting with provincial officials, meeting with officials from all uh, all parties, I think, when you and other members of WowC were at Queen's Park. Do you you wouldn't see yourself as a big partisan person, I don't expect, but do you see that sense of doing politics differently and being a little bit less partisan as, as an important element to to politics overall? So important. And that goes back to the generational change as well. Um, in my experience, sitting in, sitting back, listening, working with other mayors and wardens who have, you know, a lot more experience than I do and very successful careers. They've contributed a lot. This is not to discredit any of their work because they're they're all heroes in their own way. Um, there's an old way of doing politics. And that is, you know, thank you so much. We'll, we'll take what we can get. But I also feel like we have a responsibility to challenge that in a politically correct, a a professional, a responsible manner, but challenge the provincial government and ways to say, thank you so much. We'll take what we can get, but you're really doing a disservice here. And have you considered this gap in your policy? And, and then when we go on and we meet with the, the opposition and we sit down with the NDP party, They don't want to hear that we believe in the provincial government of the day's mandate. They want to know where those loopholes are, where the gaps are in the policy so that they can take our voice and advocate um, and and help close those gaps. So let's give them let's jump across the party lines and let's do what we need to do, which is advocate for our communities and give them the scoop that they need. And then let's do the same with the Liberal Party and let's do the same when we meet with, you know, Mike from the Green Party, the party of one and so on. But I want to go back to something that you said. So, again, speaking of representation, you are providing representation for me in your role when when you when you suggest that you are, you know, or others have suggested, I should say, that you are more independent and that you don't just tow a party line. Because for me, I don't see a career for myself in um, party politics. I It's how do you sleep at night? The beautiful thing about municipal politics is you go home and you lay your head down on your pillow because you didn't need to vote a certain way. You're just always kind of um, independent in that way. And you can do what you feel is best. And you have managed to become elected. You've worked hard for it and you've earned it in a community where now you have the ability where these conservatives can vote for you based on your merits and your work ethic and your character, you know, your characteristics and your and and your communication style. All of these things, despite that they're not aligned with your political party, they can vote for you. It's the getting you there part that we haven't penetrated in in rural Ontario um, to put party members in of a different party. That being said, we do have an independent member right now. But um, where once we can just get you there, then you can demonstrate how to do it differently. And that's the difficult part is breaking down that barrier of 
the generational, I always vote for this party. I always have voted for this party, not necessarily based on on the merits of what they're going to bring to our communities. Yeah, I think that's right. And and intros, I think we 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 share a lot in common in part because you represent a community that you were raised in. And I represent a community that I was raised in. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain necessity to maintaining integrity, maintaining a sense of honesty and decency. I don't want to walk into a room of people where I went to high school with them or elementary school where one of them taught me or one was my baseball coach or my parents taught them. And I don't want to walk into a room and have people disappointed in how I've conducted myself and to say to me, you just towed the party line and and you didn't speak for us. I'm, I'm there for them. So I, I think there's a certain accountability when you represent a place where you're from you who's your team that's that's your team yeah that's that's a good way to put it and it does put a additional amount of pressure on um (laughs) yes that that no (laughs) yeah there's the workplace pressure and then like the your people and your community pressure but uh i think that's part of the reason why at the end of the day it becomes so fulfilling right yeah i i completely 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 agree well i i want to I'm at the federal level and we've talked about municipal politics. We've talked about provincial politics. When you have an opportunity to meet with federal officials, obviously federal policy does touch housing. Federal policy Mm -hmm. does touch broadband. Federal policy does touch mental health and addictions. Federal Mm -hmm. policy does touch addressing the infrastructure gaps that you've spoken to and potentially even the, the orphan gas well issue. These are all the very same policies, I suppose, that you're raising at all levels of government. Yes. Yeah, we do. Um, So we have a new um, MP in our community. Uh, I've met with her in passing at some community events and we correspond by email, but I really haven't had a great time to to sit down and have a discussion about what our what our needs are. I think every time I see her, it's so brief that I just say water and wastewater. We need money. (laughs) Well, well, I, I think it's, it's helpful then. It's certainly helpful to me. I mean, I represent a riding that doesn't face all of the very same issues. There are so many overlapping issues. Mental health and addictions is one, but, and housing for sure is one, but we don't have the same, our broadband issues are around affordability, not accessibility in quite the same way. We don't have orphan gas wells. We we, agriculture we, lands, agricultural, you know, preservation exactly. of those lands, food exactly, security, exactly. and then and then having the rural needs comes with like its own intricate, bizarre things like COVID nineteen. We had um, a really big, difficult situation with our medical officer of health, suggesting that three men could only stay in a bunkhouse at a time regardless of the size of the bunkhouse when quarantining and working. And we have a huge temporary farm worker contingency that comes and and supports and puts food on our table. Like we're so lucky to have these, these men and women come and work in our communities. Um, but yeah, so lots of work on, I guess, both parties. But I would say I... From my experience under my last term as councillor and deputy mayor, as well as now as mayor, a lot more connection is made on the provincial level. We're impacted the most and we have the most dialogue there. And that, and that makes sense. But I, I would say, uh, one, I really appreciate your time. I really, I'm, I'm glad you are where you are and I hope you stay doing this for as long as you like. And I hope. Thank you very much. I hope and you, you have kids or don't have kids. I think you <laughs> live the life that you want and, and, and 
you're showing representation, important representation, regardless, and, and in both ways, whatever you choose. But I, I would also say, being at the federal level, if there's any way that I can ever facilitate conversations, and this has been very helpful to me, just I, as I also go about the process of exploring and uh, leadership run at, at the provincial level, I want to make sure that I'm incorporating in my team, I'm incorporating when I speak to different issues, that this isn't about just representing one part of the province. I've represented Beaches East York for the last seven years. If I'm going to do this, it's to represent people across Ontario and every community. So having this conversation and, and maintaining a, a, a dialogue is, is essential for me to do things effectively as well. Yeah, I think that'd be great. It can We can only benefit each other, benefit the community members in Norfolk County and have further advocacy. And if there's you know ever a time when we can bring you down to Norfolk and show you our beautiful county and, and the diversity and our way of life, more than happy to do that and wish you the best of luck with your uh, future endeavors. I will take you up on that. And thank you. As always, thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. As I said at the outset, we're aiming to make this a series in conversations with civic leaders who represent different geographies and communities. The next episode in this particular series will be with new Timmins Mayor, Michelle Boileau. And if you have suggestions for guests for this series or more generally, you can always reach me at info at or on social media at BEYNate. Otherwise, until next time.